Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast, our last one out in France. I'm Ben James, as ever, your host. I'm joined by Elgin Alderman of The Times. Elgin, the uh, the tourist tourist, we should say, after the last 40-odd days in France. Uh, how are you doing? How are your energy levels, first of all? It's been, a, it's been a terrific singing tour, primarily, with a little bit of rugby involved. Uh, I've just had... Well, I haven't had that many... Quiche's Lorraine while I've been out here, but I did just have another one. Um, the highlight, though, was when I had three in one day, which was the, the great moment of the World Cup, really, that people won't have noticed. But for us, it was certainly one of the great moments when I went back for my third quiche on the same day in Versailles. Otherwise, been some great rugby. We've just had a phenomenal quarterfinal weekend. Sadly for us, covering the Wales team, we are going home, won't be involved in the semi-finals, but you know, it's been a very entertaining, enjoyable month and a half out here. Indeed it has. Um, I, I always think back to that scene in Goodfellas, when Ray Liotta's going through all the different nicknames, when you've got Elgin Three Quiche. That's, that's, that's what my mind goes to when I, when I think of that, uh, that wonderful day when you had Three Quiches. <laughs> One of the many highlights of the World Cup. As you say, of course, the World Cup for us, covering Wales, is at an end. Um, it's a bit of a strange one to know what to make of it, isn't it? Because Warren Gatland has gone to great pains <laughs> to suggest that not many people expected Wales to get out of the World Cup uh, pool stage. I don't know who those people are. They haven't made themselves known. Um, and it, But it, it felt like a semi-final was, was within our grasp. Um, the, the draw has been spoken about a lot, but... Wales went into that game against Argentina as, as favourites and, and it just, for a number of reasons on, on Saturday in Marseille, it didn't materialise, did it? Absolutely. We've, we've heard Warren Gatland say many times during this trip that they were written off, that people said they wouldn't get out of the group. My recollection is that when a team finishes fifth in the Six Nations, people aren't exactly going to be saying they're going to win the World Cup. But my recollection is that most of the predictions were that when it comes to the World Cup, Warren Gatland would, would pull something out of the bag, as he has so often done in the past. And to win every pool game, 19 points out of 20, almost as good as it gets. The one point they didn't get was in the 46 win over Australia, which is the result that will live longest in the memory for Wales fans who simply do not see their team beat Australia by 34 points, no matter how bad Australia teams are and... You know, it's widely believed that this might be the worst, certainly for you know maybe sort of 40, 50 years. But even so, Wales do not do that to teams like Australia. So for them to have done that, win by 34 points on that, that night in Lyon, it did feel like the semi-final was there for the taking. And a lot of the things I've been seeing since that defeat by Argentina have suggested that Wales were comfortably second best because they lost by 12 there was a bit of massaging to that scoreline at the end. They were only two points down with four minutes to go. Even late on, you saw Rhys Samet almost scoring in the corner, that superb despairing tackle by Matthias Moroni. So even during the game itself, there were so many moments early on. There were the three lost lineouts in a row, the two dropped passes by Gareth Davis and Josh Adams when, yes, they were about 30 metres out from the try line, but there wasn't much cover defence there was the missed penalty by Dan Bigger. If any of those go in and Wales take a 17, 20, 23 point lead, suddenly you think they would have coasted to victory because Argentina wouldn't have been able to come back from that. So the 12 point defeat makes it look worse than it was. They were still in that until very late on, until Nicolas Sanchez's interception from Sam Costello. 
So it does feel like Wales went home around earlier, certainly than, than they felt like was where they wanted to be here until obviously they're going to talk as if they were going to go all the way to the final. But I think everyone has seen that even the most wide-eyed optimists knew that, that the four best teams in the world are, are a cut above the rest and and Wales were in a position to say they could be number five, the, be the best of the rest. As it is, yes, they're going home early. It, it, a familiar situation where there's a lot of pride among the fans, but the belief that actually when it came to that game, they really thought Wales were the favourites and Wales were going to win. And just some inaccuracy meant that they didn't on the day. So that's the thing, though. There was so many different factors as to why that performance almost fell apart. Um, it, it felt like they didn't believe they had the reward for their early dominance, and that almost seemed to play on their mind a bit. You mentioned that the sort of the, the scoreline getting a massage and, and it maybe not reflecting things. Well, that's, that's largely because Wales were chasing a two-point deficit, like it was a two-score deficit. The last ten minutes, they were playing like they needed two tries to win rather than just a drop goal or a penalty. And, it and, and the move that led to the interception was the move that they'd used throughout the first yeah. half to cause a lot of damage to the Argentina team. There haven't been many times I remember seeing a Wales team shipping it so wide, so early, so well, and making yards down the wing. Often, I think uh, there was one game earlier in the tournament, I can't remember which one it was right now, but there was one game earlier in the tournament where I think Lewis Rees-Hammy got the ball two times or something in the match. In this game, he got it about three times in the opening 15, 20 minutes down that yeah. right wing. You saw George North making yards out wide. You saw Jack Morgan sidestepping people in the, in the five yard in the five meter channels because, well, what doesn't Captain Jack do? But you, there was sort of a sense of uh, yeah, poetic injustice that it was going for that move one more time, the traditional Johnny Sexton loop that on this occasion with Sam Costello at 10 rather than Dan Bigger at this stage, didn't quite have enough juice on the pass and it just floated up nicely to Nicolas Sanchez who had gambled on on getting in the way and, and it paid off and he, and he had the gas from, what was it, 50 metres, however far out he was. I did, I did enjoy uh, Gatland post-match um, saying, well, you know, maybe he could have tried a double miss pass because that to me reminds me of every like YouTube comment or Twitter comment I've ever seen. Like, if you watch Mark Jones's uh, near try in 08 against France, the amount of people going, well, if he just kicks it to the corner, uh, <laughs> you got Shane on the other wing and he gets over and he's, oh, well, I suppose he could have done that. It's all, it's all very easy um, in, in hindsight. And, and there'll, be, there'll be bits that, you know, we've mentioned the bits that are in Wales's control. There were bits that weren't in Wales's control. I know there was a lot of stuff post-match about the Guido Petty hit on Nick Tompkins that, that wasn't penalised. Again, though, that wasn't in Wales's control. Yes, if it had been penalised, not necessarily, not even just a yellow card, but if it had just been penalised, then suddenly they get to clear their lines yeah. at 17-12 17, 17, with 13 minutes to go. But again, that wasn't in their control. Equally, the rare sight of Jaco Piper going off injured after 13 minutes for Carl Dixon, the referee, who then makes that decision later on. You know, Warren Gatlin said afterwards that having prepared for Jaco Piper's interpretations of the game, they thought it was going well and they, they had a good relationship with what was going on. And he said that that did unsettle them slightly. But again, that's something that wasn't in Wales's control. And overwhelmingly, there were several things that were in Wales's control yeah. that, that, that fundamentally lost them the game rather than things to do with the referee I mean for starters I don't think Yako's ever going to want to referee a Wales game again uh, <laughs> after the Vahima elbow four years ago and now this Wales have ended his tournament <laughs> two, you know two campaigns in a row 
But what was your take on the the Guido Petty hit on Nick Tompkins? Because in the stadium, I was certain that's at least a penalty, if not a card. And I thought, well, I, I think most people would be unanimous in that. But then looking online at the reaction, everyone's saying what a good decision it was. Um, now, some of those are, are Irish journalists, and it's not like them to <laughs> to have a hot take when it comes to these sort of things. And But it, it actually feels like the online consensus on this is that Carl Dixon got it right. Watching it... I just assumed it would be a penalty. And not necessarily a card, but I just assumed it would be a penalty based off everything we've seen in rugby from the past five to ten years. What what really pricked my ears up was when Carl Dixon said to Dan Bigger, and Dan Bigger was furious oh, about yeah, it. Gone. We've seen him you know, we, we we've seen him remonstrate with referees before. This was one of the all time remonstrations from from Dan in what is now his final final Wales appearance and that was obviously playing that was presumably playing on his mind at the time knowing that decisions like this could end his Wales career if they lose basically and he was furious about it and Carl Dixon said to him not all head contact is a penalty which a lot of people would agree with but would also say for the past five ten years it seems like head contact has always been a, a penalty which and it did draw some similarities in my mind obviously they're they're very different situations but I think back 12 years ago to that infamous Sam Warburton red card which when you look at it now no one doubts that it was a red card you know but but what I remember at the time thinking and at the time I was just a naive 18 year old boy watching Wales uh, in my first year at uni homesick no doubt so I didn't know what was going on with my emotions but I just remember thinking at the time that it felt like the interpretations of something had changed in a World Cup semi-final because I remember at the time thinking we've seen tackles like that in previous rounds that haven't received this interpretation. So while they are very different situations, my, my mind did turn to that slightly. It did feel like a slightly different interpretation in a World Cup quarterfinal than we've seen in previous rounds, years, tournaments. But again, I want to say... At this juncture again, there were far more things in Wales's in, in Wales's control that lost them that game than than that one decision. Yeah. And I mean, Josh Adams probably should have had a card in the first half. Um, yeah, quite possibly. And that that, 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 that was that a that weird would, one because that, Dixon talked about a rap. That was an interesting one because it, it's it's that was a a prime example of where rugby has gone down the road of viewing things as kind of black and white process rather than the nuance of why people do something motive because it did sort of look like he just fancied yeah you know in a big occasion and Josh Adams is always fired up for big occasions it did look like he just fancied sort of reminding Thomas Cabelli I'm Josh Adams and I'm here and he did just sort of dip his shoulder into him a bit and from the black and white facts yes you can see why it was penalty only but you do wonder if rugby should think, well, actually, I, I, I think there might have been some, you know, some, some meaning behind why he did it. Therefore, we don't just consider, oh, I think he's wrapped. I mean, it wasn't really a, a tackle situation at all. No, it was no. off the ball. Thomas Cabelli didn't have the ball. It wasn't really a, a tackle. So that, that was another interesting one. I, I, I agree. I thought he was, I did think he was lucky not to receive a yellow card for, for what it looked like to me. And it's, it's almost be, because of the situation where it's, the ball's gone and plays effectively ended. I think Adams does start to rap, but then because plays ended and he's just, you know, he sort of just sort of drops the shoulder. He stops rapping 
<laughs> so it makes it even more sort of baffling as to why Carl Dixon has got to that point. But yeah, a very, a very um, just a bizarre way of of, of looking at things. Um, again, it's all out of Wales's control, and, and and at the end of the day, they're out of the World Cup. Um, we now know our quarter finalists. You have to take your Wales hat off. It has been semi finalists. You're right. <laughs> You've gone back in time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> A Wales, a Wales still in the World Wales Cup. Wales still in the. I've checked the permutations, and Wales is still in the World Cup. On, on. I'm not sure if it's head to head or points difference, but they might still be in the World Cup. I can't, can't quite remember. In the in the forty odd days we've been, we've, we've had a lot of fun with the permutations with World Rugby's mathematics. Mathematics. Um, I did hear one of the boffins in Roland Garros, their their head uh, centre, discussing what would happen if Argentina beat Chile four hundred nil. And, and to think we we've had too many one-sided games in this World <laughs> Cup, <laughs> but yeah, we know we know the semi-finalists, and it was it was a fantastic uh, round of quarterfinals, wasn't it? Um, in that sense, uh, and I'm speaking to Scotland and Ireland right now, and maybe a little bit of France. The draw worked. <laughs> there is there are upsides to all manner of possible draws. Yes, we don't have. The four clearly best sides in the world in the semi-finals, but equally we had four very close quarter-finals that have ended as a four-point defeat, a one-point defeat, a six-point defeat, and Wales and Argentina, which was the biggest margin of twelve, as we've discussed, was only two until four to go. So you're looking at a situation where three of them are within one, one try of the other team winning, and the other one slightly more than that, based off some 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 late shipping of points as Wales chased the game. So you compare that to previous quarterfinals, I'm thinking of New Zealand, Ireland, four years ago, 46-14, Argentina, Ireland, four, I'm, not, I'm not picking Ireland intentionally, but they're the New first. Zealand, New Zealand, France. They're, they're the first two, yes, oh, that's the biggest one. 62-13, yes, there we are. That was, that was almost a 50-point shellacking in the quarterfinals. So you think back to previous years, and there tends to have been one or two really one-sided ones in the quarterfinal and the lopsided draw which was done too early I, I make the very yeah, I make I the mean. very pernickety caveat to people when people say that the draw is wrong I say the draw isn't wrong the, the time yes. they did it is wrong what the result of that draw is will cha- might change in the months before a World Cup because teams will get better teams will get worse on this occasion the draw was you know, too early three years is far too early but what it has served up is four excellent quarterfinals and well who knows what will happen in the semi-finals maybe now the semi-finals will be 30 point victories for two teams so who knows yeah they could be but then I think you look at those two semi-finals and there is the prospect of them both being close no they might not be um, but Argentina if, I think from the Marseille side of the draw uh, of all the semi-finals you look at where you think okay well that could be close the All Blacks against Argentina is probably the one. I think Wales against Ireland or New Zealand right now, that's probably going to be a comfortable win. And we were thinking after the quarterfinal that if Wales had won, they'd have been in a bit of injury woe yes. about who's playing where. That's a familiar story for Wales at World Cups. They they have, they have sort of go through their best players to get that far and then just, just sort of run out of steam when, when the key players are out injured. Which is odd because it felt like it was all going perfectly well in, this yeah, World in Cup. the pool stages yeah. there was almost nothing to worry Raffle, about Raffle had a slight injury but 
And with with the sort of time in between games, we've had weeks between games now in, at one point, 13 days. It's a more spread out tournament. It felt like it was almost better aligned for Wales to play that physical style of rugby and, and make it through. And then in the space of a week and a half, <laughs> almost dropped like flies. You had, yeah, question marks over the Dan Bigger, question marks over Liam Williams, question marks over Gareth Anscombe, who would have possibly vied with Bigger for the first choice yeah. fly half. Um, would have been able to cover fallback as he's done in an injury crisis before at the World Cup in 2015. And obviously the, the big blow of losing Talupe Falatao was the big one. And he, he's, you'd think this would be the last World Cup he'd have featured that. And he missed the 2019 one as well. And yeah, it does get you thinking when people put so many eggs in the World Cup basket, how it is just down to luck sometimes, whether you ever get to play there at all. Yeah, because that's, that's what we've seen, seen with Ireland right now. I mean, they've been the, the dominant force for two years and it was all on this World Cup and they're out in the quarterfinals yet again. And, and on paper, yeah, it'll look no different to all their previous ones and yet they were, yeah, they were so well prepared for that. They were so good in the pool stages. Even, yeah, again, the barest of margins... On that occasion, they could have quite easily won that game. They go through, they go through 37 phases at the end. You had, you had hints of... The first thing I thought of was when New Zealand did that to Ireland in 2013, when Ireland went three scores up so early on. And that was back when New Zealand were the best side yeah. in the world and they just marched just perfectly upfield to break Irish hearts then. Obviously, it's a different story in matchups between them now. And my, my head turned to that. It also turned to the Johnny Sexton drop goal when they marched through possibly, I think it was about 40, 40 phases, phases then as well in four yeah. minutes. And you did think they're just building so neatly here, they might do it again here and just came up short. Again, there'll be question marks over Sam Whitelock's turnover at the end, as there always are. I mean, rugby, is, we, we've seen a lot of referee complaining about these quarterfinals. We've even seen the usually unflappable Antoine Dupont saying some things about what he, the standard of the refereeing. And... You just look at any rugby game and you think anyone can point out one decision where it went against you. And for every one you say that went against you, there'll be at least one, maybe two, yeah. that went for you. Because there is just so much stuff going on. There, there are aspects of the game that aren't really refereed anymore at all. <laughs> like, clear-outs from the side at Ruck seem to just happen willy-nilly these days. And if you're the one bloke that gets pinged for it, you must think... What's going on there? We've been doing that for 80 minutes. <laughs> so there are incidents like that where, obviously when it happens so late on in a game, when it's a, such a clear individual moment, it'll, it, it does go under the microscope. But you go through any game and there'll just be so many ones that went your way and so many when, ones that went against you. And, you. and with a thing like that, you don't want to... It's, it's very tough for the officials to stop play like that. I mean, we were watching it in the stadium in Marseille uh, with some pizza kindly provided by World Rugby. And, I mean, there was, you know, potential neck rolls and maybe, you know, like hands in the rug, all these different things. But it's a bold call to make that call. Like, you think back to the the South Africa Island game in the pool stage and that final maul, how quickly that was called for a scrum when the ball looked playable. Like you, you don't want to be the one who blows the whistle too soon and then, you know, you, you can't get the cat back in the box. So, that's what that's what made the Yako Piper thing so fascinating for me. Because I I always think, really, 
it's not that the referee refs you out the game. It's that you 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 don't get on the same wavelength as him. Really, the first twenty, first ten, fifteen minutes, you should be working out what his interpretation is, and then you adjust to that. That's what made Saturday's game so bizarre because you you had a referee change, and Jakob Piper has a very unique <laughs> viewpoint of the breakdown. Carl Dixon again is different. Wales went into that with two open sides probably expecting to get some rewards because it's a bit of a wild west at times when when Yako referees the breakdown I mean Reffel and Morgan got a few penalties but they also probably didn't get what they wanted at times and we've now seen two England matches in a row against Pacific Island teams where afterwards they've made remarks about there being a bias against TAT nations with refereeing and I think Michael Alalatoa of Samoa sort of said it's it's even worse possibly for Pacific Island teams. I I don't have any evidence for that happening, but I remember when I was watching the Namibia game when who was it against? Was it Italy or Uruguay? Was it was it Uruguay when they they had two bunker yellows later on, we're down to thirteen. There's been so many games in this World Cup, I can't remember which ones they were, but I think it was Namibia against Uruguay. Because yeah. they were leading and then they sort of lost their way later on. Yes. Yes. And I remember thinking that is it simply down to that lack of exposure to the top level just means that they're not quite as well as they're not quite as good as being at being street smart around referees and knowing what you can get away with obviously you think of Sir Richie McCaw and his famed invisibility cloak that what made him so good was that he knew how to get away with things and again this was just this is just things I've been thinking about when they've been talking about, is there this perceived bias to Tier 2 nations? I've just been wondering if the Tier 1 nations know what they can get away with in front of what referees are looking for, because they always talk about things like painting a good picture these days, which essentially just means possibly doing something illegal, but making it look legal enough that the referee thinks it's okay. So, again... I've got no evidence for any of these things, but it's just been the things I've been thinking about. Yeah, because even at the end of that, like a lot of people complained about how on social media, which, you know, pinch of salt, but a lot of people complained about how the Matthew Raynal was refereeing the breakdown in that England Fiji game yesterday and how maybe Fiji weren't getting as much reward or protection on their own ball as maybe England were. And again, you, you don't know if that's true, but then certainly that last passage of play when Fiji were trying to win the game from deep and I don't know if this is because they were out on the feet because they were knackered and they were chasing a six point game or if they were paranoid about Reynal's interpretation of the breakdown but they felt like they were committing so many men at breakdowns that England could just keep 14, 15 men on their feet and Fiji had four men at breakdown and it's like you're never going to you're never going to score from deep doing that so that was I don't know it's at the time, I was thinking, I wonder if this is a reaction to Reynal or if it's just the case that you've played 18 minutes of course of final rugby and, you know, you're terrified of, of losing it and you almost sort of gone into your shells a bit. I, I don't know. That's It's um, it's all hypotheticals, isn't it? Um, yeah, as, as we say, the semi-finalists are, are done. Wales' Wales's, uh, involvement in the tournament is no more. Um, what are some of the, the highlights in terms of Wales at the tournament, on or off the field? Um, maybe less off the field. <laughs> on the field, during the Six Nations, 
it just looked like Wales didn't know what they were doing. The ball in hand, there was no sort of sense of plan. Even teams that aren't necessarily performing well, you often see what they're trying to do. And during the Six Nations, we couldn't really see any of that. Obviously, there was so much off-field stuff going on that... And the new coaching team had only just come in, so they hadn't had a chance to to have their have their way with the, the Wales strategy. But straight from that first match against Fiji, when we saw Nick Tompkins and George North combining so well in midfield to twice in quick succession, Nick Tompkins sent George North through the middle to score that try. We saw the Jack Morgan kicking game, which Warren Gatlin joked about in a press conference last week and no one laughed. And I didn't laugh because... I just thought, yeah, his kicking game has been good. <laughs> He's done two absolute belters. <laughs> I, I didn't laugh because Wales were an hour late for press conference and my head had gone. <laughs> it lost the plot. E- equally different reasons, but... <laughs> then again, the Australia game, the Georgia game to a certain extent, and the Argentina game too. We saw some good Wales attacking plays, some crisp passing, some, some good strike moves as well. The, the Jack Morgan line up the middle in the Australia game with Gareth Davis emerging on his shoulder. Varied kicking game. I mentioned the, the Jack Morgan hasty crossfield kick, but also the, the Gareth Anscombe dink over the top. There have been the usual n- non-negotiables of, of hard work, as Josh Adams alluded to it after the, the Argentina game, the, the World Cup record 253 tackles against Fiji. So... Those have been the main highlights on the field, that there has been a sense that Wales had obvious clarity, that they knew what they wanted to do. They weren't always perfect about it, but there was was a sense that it was all cohesive and there was a plan going on. And at times, they did it superbly throughout that Australia match. First 65 minutes against Fiji, when they were chucking about in their own 22 as well, which was unheard of in the modern game. And then again, that first 25 minutes or so against against Argentina again. So there's a lot, there was a lot of good stuff there. And you and I have both been thinking about what Wales will look like come February when they start the Six Nations. And I think we both went into it thinking, right, what's going what's gonna to be ripped up for the next four years leading up to the ne- this next World Cup cycle? And actually, when you look at the profile of the squad, it's not actually much change needs to be made. The, the fly-halves and the full-back will have to change because Dan Biggs retired, Gareth Anscombe, Liam Williams, both heading to Japan, so they'll be unavailable for the Six Nations. But other than that, a sprinkling of youth throughout the team, you've got Jack, Jack Mardigan and Derry Lake, and I reverted to the, the official Welsh pronunciation of Jack Mardigan there, having, having, having foolishly called him Morgan earlier on in, the, in this podcast. They, they've only been co-captains of the squad for two months. They were only installed in August. They're 24 and 23. You've got all of the back row options, except for Falatau, are 26 or younger. You've got David Jenkins, who's the alternate second row, is 20. Christians is covering the back five of the pack at 21. Sam Costello at 22 is set to be the fly half. Most of the back, yeah, well, Rio Dyer, who might end up becoming first choice wing, should Josh Adams or Lewis Rees Amit fill in at fullback. He's 23. Lewis Rees Amit's only 22. So right throughout that team, there are still players that will be young come 2027 still. And even some of the senior players like Adam Beard, Thomas Williams will be 31, 32 around there. Nick Tompkins will be 32 in four years' time. So you can keep the likes of the starting props, Will Rowlands, George North in the team, because they're only in their early 30s now. 
throughout the rest, plenty of youth. There should be more youth to come, hopefully. And there's not actually much ripping up that needs to be done when they when they take to the field in the Six Nations. No, no, there isn't. And I think that was that was one of the to quote many of our learned friends in in sort of the Welsh squad and, and amongst the World Cup. That was one of the key learnings. The word of the World Cup, learnings. Yeah. <laughs> Even even Gatlin started using it now, which I'm quite enjoying. Um, was during that last 20 minutes or even 10 minutes against Argentina, all right, Wales did not get over the line and they probably learnt the hard way some things about game management in what was a proper pressure cooker. And I mean, the group stages obviously had pressure, but a World Cup quarterfinal is different once again. But looking at that team, you're thinking, right, well, this is Jack Morgan's first quarterfinal, Derry Lake, Rio Dyer, Dav Jenkins, Chris Jones, so many boys, Costello. They'll have, they'll have learned so much from that. And it's how they take the learnings in the next four years. Derry Lake speaking after the match. Firstly, as Derry Lake admitted during one press conference in the tournament, heat affects him quite badly. He sweats quite a lot. He's coming to talk to us drenched in sweat. And he was a bit sweaty, possibly had a shower as well, but... It, there was the sense that there had been some some tears in that changing room, and he said, "You know, when you're dealing with a quarterfinal defeat with tears in the changing room, you go through that and you work even harder to make sure that doesn't happen again." And so many of those young players, yes, they'll have gone through that now. They'll have gone through a, a proper World Cup campaign with Warren Gatland, where they've been together for almost five months. They'll have seen what it's like when the Welsh rugby team is is doing quite well for a change because you think of someone like David Jenkins who made his debut in the defeat by Georgia. For him, his entire Wales career to date had essentially been player strikes, fifth place in the Six Nations and a coach sacked in, in November. <laughs> There's so, a lot of boys from the 90s going, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what it was. Uh, <laughs> there was 30 years where that just happened nonstop. Um, so for a lot of young players, they, they won't have experienced what it's like being in a Wales team that wins a few games in a row, that has that huge travelling support in France. And the supporters have been magnificent in every city we've been to. A word for them. And Josh Adams, ever the, ever the, the thoughtful speaker, as he always is, did thank supporters when he's speaking afterwards, you know, aware of how much it costs and how difficult it can be to get around. And we've seen... We've seen strikes in France this weekend that mean people have been thumbing lifts to get from airports in the in the wrong French city and things along those lines. This weekend, an early morning buses and all sorts going on. And so, yes, for for this new emerging generation, they'll have experienced what it's like to have a bit of positivity around the Wales team for for, for the first time. Absolutely. Um, and highlights off the pitch. Uh, you mentioned the fans. That's an obvious place to start, I suppose. Um, the the singing in the cities before the match has been a superb just start to the day, really, where you've seen the sea of red jerseys come together and, and sing. There have been individual WhatsApp groups for each each flash mob uh, in every city. And one of them has already been renamed Six Nations Flash, so they are preparing to bring it back to Cardiff and maybe the other cities of the Six Nations as well. That's been superb, just seeing all those red tops around, enjoying following the Wales rugby team around after the difficulties of 
of recent months. So that is, for me, the, the clear and obvious highlights off the field for the World Cup. And it's, and it's given us a chance to, to flex our vocal cords, isn't it? We both like singing. We, we do, do both like we singing. Do. And we've needed not even a first invitation, frankly, to, to sing along either. I mean, some, some lesser podcasts would have asked you to sing by now, but uh, <laughs> I, I won't fall into that trap. Um, it's fine. They don't listen. Um, but yeah, just, as, just an experience. You I know, like we, all the podcasts I appear on, for the record. <laughs> That's a, that's, that's I a, do not align myself with Ben James's opinions. <laughs> that's a statement. That's a statement befitting the, the podcast <laughs> we're talking about. Um, I mean, as it's your first World Cup, covering it as a journalist is mine. I guess you know, sort of pulling back the curtain a bit and offering an insight to the listeners. How have you found it covering it? Because it's. I mean, again, I'm wary that journalists talking about journalism is is a bit like when Hollywood makes films about Hollywood and expects people to care about it and they don't but it's been a it's been an interesting experience covering this World Cup for a number of reasons for start I think that this, this is our sixth week sixth week here and we're only just past the quarterfinals it's been a very spread out tournament hasn't it it's been a long tournament you know having 13 days off in between matches is a bit bizarre and it does feel like you lose a bit of momentum after that opening weekend, which everyone loved, to then not have a game for, for three or four days, that felt like, oh, we've just inflated this balloon and now we're just letting it deflate for a few days again. Obviously, there are difficulties in, in planning and logistics for player welfare, for ensuring that the smaller nations don't have only three, four-day turnarounds like they've had in previous World Cups, and that's all a noble pursuit. But pretty early on in this, this tournament, there was talk about how it could and I think should be a 2014 World Cup in four years and actually that could make it be that could turn it into a, a slightly shorter tournament because you have the three pool games going straight into a last 16 quarterfinal semi-final etc so I think it could do with a bit of tightening again it's it's a bit different experiencing it in France rather than in Wales itself in the UK you don't know quite so much how it's being consumed there but you see what the excitement's like when match day happens here um it's you know slightly more difficult to watch all the games that you want to when you're out here than when you're at home and you know you can just pop home over the evening to watch watch the game the i think something we've 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 both felt is that and it, it's it's a topic that rugby often wrestles with that more should be done to promote the sport. We've seen the people uploading videos on Twitter that are being having copyright strikes. Even Wayne Barnes himself having a copyright strike yeah, when he uploaded fantastic. a video of a player shaking his hand. You just think, why is there so much going on to, to, to stop people trying to spread the image of the game and, and things that are happening and, and see and consume what's happening in this this tournament um so it's a shame to see things like that it's a shame that sometimes teams won't necessarily fully buy into trying to promote their team and give an insight into the camp i think there's certainly a sense and i think it's been the case with wales and england where maybe they've wanted to adopt that siege mentality that nothing gets out that the, the loose lips sink ships approach they 
sometimes you do get the impression that even when they reveal that they play rugby for a living, that they think, oh, I've said a bit too much in this, uh, in this interview here. I, I didn't want them to know that. Uh, so it would be nice to see things like that. Uh, just, just things to make rugby seem more appealing when it's going through a difficult time for, for people to hopefully enjoy, enjoy the sport more. And as we've seen with these quarterfinals, especially those two in Paris, you know, we've just had one of the most spectacular weekends ever. So the sport, when it is about the sport and two great teams going against each other, remains as good as it's ever been. Absolutely. Um, I don't think there's much more to say uh, from, from, well, Wales' World Cup. Um, I should mention that we are sat outside um, the train station in Paris. Uh, so if you can hear sirens and people walking by, that's just the hustle and bustle of uh, of France's capital city. Um, I guess the final word should, should be on a man whose Wales career came to, not the end he wanted on the weekend, but just you know one of one of the greatest servants i think to that test jersey uh dan bigger and i think the moment that summed it up for me was sort of post-match in near the mix zone really was just the time he spent giving to journalists even before he started his media duties i think he did he did his mail online column and then french journalists collared him after that and then a few more french journalists called him he's still in his kit at this point um just, just, yeah, the amount of time he has for journalists and just, just people in general, I think it, it, it does speak volumes of the man. And, it, and it's at odds with, I think, the reputation people who only see him on TV have because he is a fiery, tempestuous character when he's on the rugby field. People think of him as being someone who's petulant and moans at decisions a lot because he is such a fierce competitor. But off the field, unfailingly polite, time for everyone. Um, he's been an absolute pleasure to deal with um, in my, my short time during this World Cup. Again, you think back, he made his debut 15 years ago. It's a long old stint. He made his debut before Sam Warburton. Sam Warburton retired six years ago. He's been around for a long time. It hasn't all been easy. He's had plenty of... He's always been the, the roundhead fly half to a lot of Cavaliers that people like to suggest should be there. It's the age-old... Wales fly half debate that we've all, always experienced with Neil Jenkins and Adwell Thomas, or I think I think uh, we said earlier in the tournament that Stephen Jones might be quite rare, and that at one stage he was the roundhead and the Cavalier. He was po possibly <laughs> the more exciting version of Neil Jenkins, but then the less exciting version of James Hook. And so down the years, obviously there've been the charms of Reese Priestland, there've been youngsters coming through like Jared Evans. Reese Patchell, you know, Gareth Anson's been around for quite a few years now. And, and there's always been this sense that certain people haven't wanted Dan Bigger to be Wales' fly half in that time. But when it comes to that, that, old, that old phrase of test match animals, he's up there. He's a British and Irish Lion, 112 caps for Wales, put in many great fine performances. And you can now enjoy a bit of time. At the Stade Felix Mayol in Toulon, where we've been for a few days last week, while because Wales were training there, and you can enjoy enjoy a season. Who knows, two seasons in a fine part of the world where rugby is king, and he is the king of Toulon now. I mean, he is he is revered out here, isn't he? And uh, I mean, you spoke you spoke about fly halves and the fly half factory, so I think it's fitting that you you maybe sign off with 
a line from Max Boyce that has maybe summed up the tour from the media side more than any other. Which was that? <laughs> Do you want me to say, is there a particular one you want me to say or am I supposed to have to think of one? Um, well, normally I just walk around French cities and suddenly go, we paid our weekly shilling and just see if anyone hears it. And usually no one does, but there's often just a little, been, been a a little glint in the eye from Gareth Griffiths of BBC Wales or, uh, or your, your good self. The, uh, um, indulging my the Ernie to your, the, the Ernie self to your in, Eric completely self-indulgent whims but uh, no it's been it's been a fun it's been a fun tournament Wales going home slightly earlier than they hoped they would but uh, no hopefully yes when it comes around to the Six Nations some of that positivity remains and the Six Nations flash takes Cardiff by storm indeed and hopefully Wales defeat England in a fast and open game I have to be completely neutral on such matters, I'm afraid. I can't pin my colours to the wall like you can, Ben. I was expecting that, I was expecting that to be your favourite line. <laughs> it is my favourite line, as Max once said. <laughs> well, there we go. That is it from the Welsh Rugby Podcast out in Paris. A massive thank you to Elgin for joining me. Uh, if you have enjoyed the podcast, do make sure to give it a review. Until the next time, au revoir. Au revoir.